0: is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Over the last few weeks, we brought you interviews with some of the leading candidates from both parties in the U.S. Representative District 2, uh, Lieutenant Governor, and Governor's races. We had planned to close out this week with two Republican gubernatorial candidates, BJ Penn and Heidi Sunyoshi. Penn declined our invitation, and Sunyoshi was able... to unable to do an interview after losing her voice. Today we hear from Chief Elections Officer Scott Nago. He said that as of this morning, more than 250,000 ballots are in and are being prepared to be tabulated tomorrow night. The volume is down about 20% compared to the 2020 election. The midterms normally draw smaller turnouts than elections for president. A reminder, it is too late to use the U.S. postal system to make the 7 p.m. deadline tomorrow. You must use the ballot drop boxes. Do it either today or tomorrow, or your vote won't count. Here's Nago.
1: Go have your ballot, take it to a place of deposit, or a voter service center. For a list of those locations and hours, you can visit our website at elections.hawaii.gov.
0: I know that you folks uh, have that new tracking system. How's that been going?
1: So we have over 7,000 people signed up for that. Basically, you can sign up to receive alerts via text, email, or voice. It will uh, let you know When your ballot has been received, processed, and ready for counting, and once um, your ballot has been processed, you can download your virtual I Voted sticker to share on social media with friends and family.
0: Are you surprised at that number? Were you hoping for more? It's really picked
1: up. It was really slow earlier. Then it started to pick up as the media started advertising it.
0: And it's simple to do?
1: It's simple to do. You just go to elections.hawaii.gov, and you can subscribe, and you can... Let us know how you want those alerts to come so you can get them via either text or email. Or I mean, if you don't have any of that, there'll be a voice call or a recorded message to you.
0: Are we sitting pretty good for Saturday? What's your sense?
1: As far as processing ballots, we're keeping up with what we receive. So what we're currently processing are the ballots we received in the mail and at boxes yesterday. So we're almost a day behind in the processing and scanning. But so far, we're keeping up.
0: Now, when we had the election the last time around, there were some problem areas, right? Uh, places didn't close because there were lines. There were sure lines. Correct.
1: So you, uh, voter service centers, um, if you're in line prior to 7 p.m., you'll be allowed to vote. Uh, we cannot release results until all voting has um, been completed. So if you, uh, that's why the results didn't come out, because there were lines because voters were uh, in line prior to 7 p.m.
0: Where were those lines?
1: I believe it was um, mainly on Oahu and not as bad on the neighbor island. So it was uh, Honolulu Halle and Kapolei Halle.
0: So you really want to get people to yeah, avoid those wait. lines, don't wait in the afternoon, get it in in the morning.
1: Or you can go to Voter Service Center currently. We have voter service locations on Oahu, and we also have a pop-up location at Wahiwa that closes on Friday, 6.30 uh, p.m.
0: Those service centers now, if you change your mind about who you're voting for and you want a fresh ballot, and once your
1: ballot has been received and um, accepted, we, you have voted and you will not be allowed to vote again.
0: Right, right. But, I mean, if I still have my ballot and I change my mind about who well, I want You can go to
1: a voter service center and vote. Or you can even go to a voter service center and request a replacement ballot so you can um, vote who you want to. So it, I guess the other important thing is if you make a mistake on your ballot, do not use whiteout or cross it out. Um, call your Contact your county clerk for a replacement ballot or head on down to a voter service center to get a replacement ballot.
0: Do you foresee any issues with this process this time around? I mean, if we've got fewer ballots coming in?
1: Yeah, it's really hard to say what the lines will be on Election Day. It's just really hard to predict if there will be lines or when those lines will be. So like I said, if you're in line by 7 p.m. on Election Day, uh, you will be allowed to vote even if it's after 7 p.m.
0: Okay, but I mean, I don't see any alerts for bad weather or anything like that.
1: Uh, Not that I know of.
0: And then as far as the observers, Uh what's the situation there?
1: So we do have observers from both parties. They serve as the eyes and ears of the general public. And um, anytime there's an open ballot, um, it needs to be done in front of official observers.
0: And then I did see a story about how there were a larger number of Republicans than in the past.
1: Yes, so we did get 200 names from the party. And we normally we would get, we'd be lucky if we got 50. They did submit a lot of names.
0: And have they been all walked through the process? They've been all
1: walked through the process. Um, not all of them, but um, we did get quite a bit of them make it through the process. They went through um, the testing of the voting voting and vote counting system as well as observing um, this pre-processing period we're in.
0: Do you need all 200? Um,
1: it's not just election day anymore. It's really a two-week period up until election till election day. So... They rotate shifts, so they're not here all the time.
0: Otherwise, machines seem to be set up, ready to go with the pre Oh, okay, so we
1: already started processing from last week, Monday. So we're just, we're not going to tabulate results until Election Day, but we already started the scanning and processing of ballots so that we can just hit the button at the end of uh, Election Day to get the results.
0: Okay. What are your predictions? or When do you think we're, we're going to get the first printout and last printout? What's you know, so the first
1: printout, in the 2020 primary election, came out. I want to say about 8 p.m. because voting closes at seven, but people were still voting. We it just depends on the line. Uh, the The final printout for the final final out because Oahu is usually the last. Came out about 12 or noon on Sunday the next day. So it just depends on if we get a lot of if we get long lines at the voter service centers, and we get a lot of drop off at the, the drop boxes that we need to process.
0: Gosh, you're pretty confident that we've got enough uh, drop boxes? You know, um,
1: we're getting a lot of ballots from the drop boxes. I'm pretty confident we have enough drop boxes because the city clerks actually established drop boxes. They're monitoring usage and things. like. I know um, they had to relocate one from Kohuku to Sunset Beach, so it was an accessibility thing and a usage thing.
0: But any other issues that have cropped up, let's say on the neighbor islands?
1: Not that I know of. Okay. Um, so far, so good? So far, so good. We had to... So we normally plan um, shifts for processing. We had to cancel a lot of afternoon shifts because we just... Um, once we're caught up and we don't get any more ballots for the day, um, we're done. So we did cancel a lot of afternoon shifts.
0: Anything you want to underscore?
1: Yeah. Listeners. So if, you're going to, if you still have your ballot, don't drop it in the mail. Take it to... a place of deposit or a voter service center, make sure you sign your envelope because envelopes without a signature on it will not be accepted for accounting because that, we use that signature to verify you are the voter. that um, We we compare that signature to the signature on file just to validate the voter.
0: And that was the state's chief election officer, Scott Naga, reminding voters again, do not mail your ballot. It's past that time. You now have to physically deposit your envelopes at the ballot drop centers in the county where you normally vote. The centers will close at 7 p.m. tomorrow night. The state health department expects to get two additional staffers to work on COVID wastewater studies starting next week, but don't expect to see data online until the following month. We talked to Maria Stedman, a fellow with the Association of Public Health Laboratories, who's working with the Hawaii Department of Health. She came on board in March and is helping to stand up the program that will process uh, wastewater samples locally instead of sending them to the mainland, which adds to the delay of the data.
2: We are getting up as quickly as possible. We have been processing wastewater on site, but our program is like completely up and running. We are getting data. It's just that we're not processing the samples currently like on site in Oahu, but they're getting processed um, on the mainland. And we're getting the data like weekly and looking at it, creating results or reports internally that, you know, we're looking at and it's really cool. And like, um, we're really excited, you know, we're working to make this data public as well so that people can see that, you know, this program is up and running.
0: Okay, and so what can you tell us about the participation of the counties? Yeah, we have
2: 15 wastewater treatment plants from all the counties and, you know, they've been really awesome because, you know, they're giving time and energy to help us in the surveillance and we really, like, Appreciated. They've been really helpful, and they're really good with communication. i really thankful for all of them being so willing to participate in this program.
0: But you don't have everybody. How many more are there to, uh, you know, convince to, to come on board with this?
2: It's like almost 200 wastewater treatment facilities, which range from, like, private to public. But like, along the whole state, we have 15. But some of the wastewater treatment plants that we have are, like, the largest in the state and um, we would you know like to increase participation and we're also looking to like set up um, sampling outside of like a correctional facility for example or a nursing home so that we can get like you know surveillance of these facilities as well.
0: And the University of Hawaii I think is doing some of that.
2: Yeah they have some surveillance set up and they're doing a really good job of like sampling outside of like the dorms, for example, so that they can help predict like surges um, within their own students.
0: And what's the barrier to getting uh, the data that you're collecting internally online to share with everybody?
2: So right now we we are working with the wastewater treatment plants to make sure that they're okay with displaying this data because they don't have to participate in this program. And we just want to make sure like we keep good relations essentially.
0: And do we have a large enough sample if it's just the fifteen plants and there are a total of two hundred?
2: So we were looking at um, the data we have so far, comparing it to the case count across each county in the state, and we found that the trends are almost identical. So it's a really good sign, you know, because, yeah, there might be almost two hundred, but you know, if I live in Manoa, I'm gonna I go to Pearl City, and you know I'm not just using one bathroom. And one wastewater treatment plant isn't serving me. So it's really cool to see that, you know, despite 15 being um, in the program, we could still see this correlation to the trends in
0: case counts. But what about the lag? Because those samples are being sent away to the mainland and and it does take, what, a week before we get it?
2: Like as of right now, that's kind of what we just have to work with and that's why I you know we're working really hard in the lab of like verifying our protocols you know so that we can do it more efficiently on site and get those results like almost instantly right right after we're, we're finished processing so it'll help in a more efficient response so that we can immediately look at this data
0: and correct me if I'm wrong but the Department of Health does have the instrumentation uh, right now up at the at, at its labs
2: yeah yeah we do it's really exciting There's, Like pretty advanced technology and it's really powerful and efficient we have been processing like a little bit of wastewater but like I said we want to make sure like what we're doing matches like results that we're seeing from biobot that company who's currently processing the wastewater for the national wastewater surveillance system
0: is there a template though that that we can just use without having to reinvent the wheel so that we can you know stand this up as quick as we can
2: Yeah. So because of like the popularity, there's a lot of different templates and guides out there. The one that was agreed to before I joined in March, um, we're following a protocol from a biotechnology research company called GT Molecular. So we just adapted protocols from there. You know, they've even helped us with like a lot of questions that we've had about certain things and like expediting our process and helping with like viral recovery and all of that.
0: Once we do get the data online, do we know like, what kind of detail we're going to be able to see it? I mean, will we see by zip codes? Will we see exact numbers or just rough percentages?
2: Currently, we are aggregating it by county. I am in communication with some of the larger wastewater treatment plants to ask them if they would be willing to like, release it by their name or zip code or location, like a little bit more representative of the area, right? So just waiting on approval. So either way, we could show up by county, which keeps like the wastewater treatment plans confidential. But even by county, those concentrations still like correlate with the case count trends. So it's still powerful if it was to be displayed by county.
0: And then what about testing for other things? Because you know, in the headlines, we've got monkeypox and we've got polio. So how soon can we ramp up to start testing those kinds of things?
2: Yeah, so that's a really great point. It's been on our radar. We've had, like, a lot of discussions about it. And right now, like, COVID is our first priority. So we want to get that up and running. And then um, we're thinking about adding in monkeypox. And also polio is on our radar. But um, I'd say first priority is COVID. And then we're looking to add
0: monkeypox for sure. But why can't we just do it all at one time? Are the protocols that different?
2: So... There's um, different, like, testing and kits that we need for monkeypox. We can hypothetically use a slightly different instrumentation, but we want to keep, like, the same instrument. So we want this specific kit um, that we're waiting for the release of it. But we still want to get the COVID up and running first before anything.
0: Have we ordered the kits for monkeypox and polio? We're
2: on their wait list currently, and they should be available, like, in the next month or so.
0: And so then as far as staff, the people that will be starting to come online, you know, next week and and the following week, you know, are these researchers or or technicians? Yeah,
2: so they both have research, um, both have, you know, master's degrees. They both have like laboratory experience so yeah we're really excited to have them join our team and it will really help out with processing on site.
0: Explain to our listeners you know how are these samples collected do you have a third party do you have these wastewater systems collecting and then sending the samples to you and then you forward it to the labs how does that work?
2: Right now it's raw wastewater that's being collected and these people are chosen from the wastewater treatment plants and so the company that is processing Biobot sends the sampling kits to them. They put the raw wastewater in like a little plastic tube and then that gets sent directly back to uh, Biobot.
0: And then they get the results to you?
2: The data gets uploaded um, and sent into the CDC and then there's like a very secure server that I get the data from from there.
0: And as far as what the CDC puts out, uh, is it everything that's collected here across the state, or just a portion of it?
2: If you were to Google, like, the National Wastewater Surveillance System, for the public, it's um, only, like, wastewater treatment plants that serve greater than 3,000 people. But, like, for the data that we receive, it's for all 15 that are participating.
0: Okay, it's but it's just not complete.
2: Oh, it, well, for us that we're getting, yes, it is complete. We can see, like, all the data, but for the website that's like available for the public right now it's not displaying like all of the wastewater treatment plans
0: so that might be a little confusing though why the numbers aren't the same if, if, if we see it somewhere else although you already even you aren't even publishing yours I guess so um, I guess there's only yeah. one number that we're and we seeing.
2: hope that with our report that it would be like a little bit easier to interpret than um like what is being shown right now so that's another goal of ours.
0: Does the lag in getting the reporting, and is that affecting the data that the, the, the feds publish? I mean, you know, and, and I don't know. I mean, how soon would we be able to put up our our data online once you guys get running?
2: Yeah, I would say, like, a few months or so, um, we are, like, in communication with um, within the Department of Health about it. Like, we've been sharing the reports and getting feedback and just working on to improve it also make it, like, um, as easy to interpret as possible.
0: Okay. You know, how large of a team will you have working on the COVID sampling?
2: It will be, like, uh, for sure three of us, and then we do have a few other people, like um, technicians, who are helping out um, whenever they can.
0: And then um, if, let's say, we come up with a positive uh, polio case here, like, you know, we saw what happened in New York, Is there a way to be able to stand up the polio testing faster?
2: If the case comes about, I think this discussion um, will be brought up again and we'll start really like expediting the process of getting like some kits for polio for sure. But as of right now, like we're just emphasizing COVID and then secondly, monkeypox.
0: That was Maria Stedman, a fellow with the Association of Public Health uh, Laboratories. She's working with the Hawaii State Health Department to stand up its wastewater testing program. Mm
3: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii.
4: In HBO's industry, Mahalo Herald's character enters the cutthroat world of finance. She says starting out in Hollywood isn't so different. As a black person, I understood it was my job to make myself undeniable. I need to come yeah. in with all the questions y'all think you're going to ask me answered. my Herald, I'm being her own champion. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.
5: Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me.
3: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting cross-pollination, flowers across the collection. Artworks from Homa's vaults and galleries exploring the resonance of flowers in art. On view now, (laughs) honolulumuseum.org.
0: reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beat brings us a story about senior housing, affordable senior housing. Reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us today with news about a proposed project by the Catholic Diocese. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so gosh, this project that you got wind of, it's going to be downtown Honolulu.
4: Yeah, and it's urban core, too. At first, I thought I was in Chinatown, but I guess there's a cutoff on Uwanu Avenue. But I just thought it was interesting that the Catholic Church is you know, um, working with a nonprofit organization just to develop 66 one-bedroom units um, at the Fort Street Mall, which is um, one of the historic locations. So they're hoping to get that built, maybe it's optimistic, but by 2024, but it's still in the beginning stages. And they just pitched their proposal to the Downtown Chinatown Neighborhood Board just last week on Thursday.
0: And so uh, how tall of a building are we talking about exactly? How does that all work?
4: We're talking about uh, 17 stories and the lot area is about 6,900 square feet. And what's interesting also about this project is like normally when you see affordable housing, you're talking about studio apartments for older adults, um, 55 and up, but this one's actually going to be a one bedroom. The developers have told the neighborhood board um, they wanted this one bedroom just to kind of give um, those who are considered seniors um, some privacy. Um, but so far, um, still in the beginning process. So th-
0: this this project, I mean, where is it going to be? Are they going to have to raise any buildings? How does that work?
4: So with this one, it's really interesting, just because um, it's right where the cathedral. Cathedral Basilica of Our Lady Peace Church is that Catholic church and on the right side of that where it says St. Damien that building has been vacant has been used but it's owned by that Catholic church so they're going to be building right on top of it up to 17 stories Um, so far um, still in the beginning process but um, still in the works.
0: So I understand that this was a a idea um, of uh, Bishop Larry Silva Mm
4: -hmm.
0: to get this going Um,
4: I didn't get to talk to him. He was actually, um, he's out of the country right now. But, you know, um, after talking to um, Michael Magaway, he said that this was something that he wanted to do for his community. And um, just to have this um, affordable housing on their property was something that they wanted to do for, especially for um, an aging population on Oahu.
0: And so, gosh, I mean, uh, what are the hurdles they have to scale, you know? What's the first stop?
4: It's a very long process. So right now they've applied for their 201H application, which is um, from the HHFDC. Um, That takes a while. They also need to get approval from the Honolulu Department of Planning and uh, Permitting um, before they even can get final approval from the uh, Honolulu City Council. But that's also if they run into opposition. But so far, since it's in the beginning stage, there hasn't been opposition so far or not yet.
0: And uh, the city just recently announced that, you know, they've got plans to step up some of their affordable housing projects, too.
4: Yeah, they did. Um, They announced, um, was it early this week, about the $30 million plan to build six affordable housing projects, um, one in Aiea, Wailua, uh, Macaulay, um, Kailua, and even Chinatown as well. So it's about um, 972 units total within the next five years.
0: Yeah, well, we all know that the need is great. And, uh, you know, we'd like to see this stuff up uh, yesterday.
4: (laughs) Yeah, and this is what I've been hearing from housing advocates, too, is um, the talk about affordable housing is needed, but once it is built, it's filled up in the blink of an eye, literally. Um, One developer has told me it took literally a month for it to fill up, and the wait list can be up to six months.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know they just... uh, uh, put up one there gosh uh in the pensacola area and it was a beautiful building but mm-hmm. yeah though those just went like hotcakes
4: yeah and it's even for um young adults like 20 a 29 year old uh, that i just talked to he said that it would take him two years just to get into affordable housing
0: yeah and and the, the general market uh, for uh, just rental units is very very tight so it is a dilemma but thank you so much Cassie. Thank you. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's reality check. To read the full story, head to civilbeat.org.
3: Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com.
0: On the next Fresh Air, we remember Lamont Dozier, part of the songwriting team that wrote the Motown hits Stop in the Name of Love, Baby Love, You Can't Hurry Love, Heatwave and reach out. Dozier died Monday. We'll listen to our interview with him and his songwriting partners, Brian and Eddie Holland. Join us.
5: Beginning this afternoon at 3 following Science Friday.
3: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. Got garlic?
0: Well, if you're interested in growing garlic commercially, you may want to stay on the dial. Agricultural researcher Jensen Ueta is a proponent of growing garlic in the islands. He's been gathering data from test plots in Wailua, Kula, and Waimea to help bring this crop to the Hawaii market. This month, he and co-principal investigator, uh, Kylie Tavares, are holding workshops with interested commercial growers. They'll cover the basics of garlic production, share data from those field trials, and talk about value-added products. Today, we a, a segment where the Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Ueda to find out how to successfully produce this savory, pungent cloves.
6: I knew that majority of the garlic being consumed in Hawaii was imported from California and China. So... There's a potential market that could be tapped into if we can work on the economics as far as garlic production in Hawaii, and maybe that's not the same market that we compete with. We work with more of the higher-end markets and develop value-added products to compete with that higher-end market versus the wholesale market.
7: break that down for me, what stops people from being able to grow garlic in Hawaii?
6: For the most part, it's a seasonal thing. Because we have such short days in Hawaii, we don't have the temperate climate like the normal garlic growing areas have. We have to manipulate the garlic seed prior to planting to increase bulb size. So that manipulation is called vernalization. So naturally, garlic is planted before the winter frost. And that winter frost basically breaks dormancy on the garlic. And then as garlic comes into the spring, it's released from that dormancy and then allowed to germinate through the snow, or in some cases there's no snow, it naturally gets that that chill period during the winter. In Hawaii, we don't have that chill period that the U.S. mainland has, so we have to basically put the bulbs into a refrigerator during that period to mimic that winter frost, and then we can plant in the spring. Based on their characteristics, they're classified as different types of garlic. I guess there's two categories, hardneck versus softneck. Hardnecks typically have a flower stem that gives it that hardneck structure versus softnecks typically don't have that. And then within those two major groups, you have a few subtypes. The hardnecks seem to be more adapted to the warmer tropical climate. So the majority of the varieties we selected the Creole Asiatic turban types, porcelain, purple stripes and the recambles fall into that hard neck category. But I did include some of the soft neck types, which typically are more in line with the US mainland varieties. Like the long storing, long shelf life type varieties are more of the soft neck types.
7: So what we um, would find in the grocery stores would most likely be a soft neck garlic. Yes.
6: And when you rip open the garlic you won't typically see a stem in the center of the world. Typically, how you can tell it's a soft neck. And because the hard necks typically have a shorter shelf life, they're sold more locally. So you'd find most of them probably in like an Oregon, Washington, California market, like farmer's market versus a wholesale type of market. But because of the shelf life characteristic, that to ship garlic to Hawaii, typically on a boat so it's taking a long period so that shelf life is brought down due to transportation but if you're growing it on the U.S. mainland it's a lot easier to get it from the farm to the market.
7: So you started these trials five years ago sharing the research with growers funding the project through grants and what have you learned?
6: Garlic can be grown here there's a potential for a higher end high value market for local garlic in Hawaii I don't think that we're going to compete with China and California for the wholesale market. So for producers in Hawaii, I don't think you should try and import-replace those markets. But getting into farmers' markets where higher value can take place for fresh product or developing products that have higher value, so like chili oil doesn't require a lot of product, but you can market it as a Hawaii-grown product, then that value would be significantly increased. We've been working with the KCC Culinary Innovation Center with Dr. Lauren Tamamoto. So she's been our food scientist on this particular project. She's been on the grant since we started with the Department of Ag. Her and her students at the KCC Culinary Innovation Center have been partnering with us to come up with different value-added products. So over the last four or five years, we've been able to make stuff like black garlic. Black garlic can be higher value if marketed correctly. Basically, it's a fermented garlic product, and it gives that garlic a sweeter, savory flavor instead of that spicy, pungent flavor. And we're using that flavoring in different things. Ice cream was one of them, very interesting flavor.
7: No way, ice cream?
6: Uh, Yeah, black garlic ice cream. I was fooling around with stuff like pizza, so slicing it up and flavoring pizza with the black garlic like a roasted chicken pizza that you just want to add flavoring, you can put slices of black garlic on top. Pickled garlic is another option, like gerankyo, but I'm not sure if that has the high enough value to justify it versus a black garlic. You can ask for up to $15 a pound to $20 a pound for that particular product if marketed correctly.
7: So you're assisting growers develop a method to grow garlic in Hawai'i. And economically speaking, Best to target that consumer who's who's willing to pay extra for a fresh garlic grown in Hawaii.
6: And from the last few years, we've been able to increase the number of garlic growers in Hawaii. I think we've introduced at least six to seven new farmers, and this last year was their first harvest. And one of the farmers on Maui was able to produce, I think, 900 pounds this year of garlic, marketing at six or seven dollars a pound which is way higher than you would see a California garlic in the market. And they're considering expanding their production to meet their market demand. And I Mm -hmm. think they're only selling it to a few locations.
7: Would these farms be sourcing straight to restaurants?
6: Right now, that's, that's been my recommendation. So that's probably where they're at now is direct to restaurants basically right after harvest. Restaurants can hang on to this garlic for a while, that's why, so they can bulk order it if they have the refrigerator space mm-hmm. to take that whole 900 pounds and use that throughout the year. It should last within the refrigerator for four to six months.
7: Therefore, not really making it into the public market. What is the flavor of the local garlic?
6: To me, it's not as pungent. Even the color and texture to me, it's a lot whiter, a lot cleaner feeling to me than mainland garlic. I've dropped a few off at different chefs to see what they think. A few have gone to the Culinary Innovation Center as well to taste it when I've dropped off some garlic and I got some opinions. And most of them have said that they don't, it's not what they typically get from their vendors as far as color, flavor. And each variety has its own characteristics. So if we can get more success with different varieties, I think we can hopefully expose Hawaii to the different eating qualities of garlic, the different flavor profiles, I guess you could say, similar to like cupping coffee from different locations. You can get different garlics that have different aromas, different flavors. But I don't think we're there yet as as an industry. I think we're just figuring out how to grow it and can we keep it going consistently at this point and there's room for expansion. Every year the seed company I've been working with is called Fillaree, F-I-L-A-R-E-E, and every year I look at the seed catalog that they have out and there's always something different. So we try to throw in new stuff every year into the the trials to see if there's other promising
7: varieties. And because you're working with the Department of Ag, this right now is mainly for farmers who are doing bigger crop production. What if it were like a small Just backyard farmer, somebody who wants to grow garlic, is that something that's possible?
6: Yeah, it's the same concept, just on a smaller scale. So Mm -hmm. it would be the same thing. You could go to the market, and your leftover garlic in October, you're not going to eat it. Throw it in the refrigerator, store it till November, December, and then plant it in a pot or your garden or wherever you have room available. And if you have the space, go for it and grow your own, because fresh garlic is, in my opinion, amazing compared to store-bought garlic, so give it a chance. And you can even order the garlic seed instead of buying it from the market if you wanted to try some of the ones that have done well for us. You can go to Filari and order straight from them and they'll ship it to you.
7: So if I am interested in buying garlic seed, and this Mm -hmm. company does ship to Hawaii, what variety would you recommend, say, if I were in, not in Waihua, but say maybe drier Ewa?
6: I would say try the German Extra Hardy. It's a porcelain type that has been the standard, I think, in all of our trials for the last five years. It's the only one that has been consistent every year that we've planted it at all three locations.
7: Hmm. From seed to table, you handle a lot of garlic. How do you prepare garlic? How do you like eating garlic?
6: Um, I like to chop it up and pan fry it, crisp it up, and then... I buy chili oil, mix it with the chili oil, kind of infuse it into the chili oil and mix a little bit of salt and pepper into that. And then I use that and mix it with a bunch of different things. I put it on spam moussadis in between the spam and the rice. If I make like a chicken salad sandwich, I'll mix that in the chicken salad with the mayo to give it some flavor and some spice. Other than that, I like putting it in prime ribs whole or dicing it up and mixing it in fried rice. Those are my kind of go-to's with garlic.
7: Thank you, Jensen. Now I'm super hungry. Ah, that sounds so
0: good. (laughs) So so am I. (laughs) So be on the lookout for locally grown garlic in a market or restaurant near you. Uh, We've been hearing from H.P.R.'s Lillian Song and University of Hawaii agricultural researcher Jensen Ueta. Look for garlic production workshops for commercial growers in Hilo, Tuesday, August 23rd, and in Kona, Thursday, August 25th. We'll have details on our website, hoypublicradio.org.
3: Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Na Mea Hawaii and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
0: Hello, I'm Mampela Rampili, author of
8: Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about reimagining a future that is just and prosperous for.
5: Beginning
0: Sunday morning at 11. When you hear the name Kermit Appio, you probably think of someone who would either never get up in front of an audience or someone who was destined to be a comedian. Well, Kermit Appio is a real person, and luckily for the Honolulu-born and raised comic, apparently people think he's really funny. After graduating from Iolani School in the 1980s, he attended college in Seattle, and and in early 1989, he did his first open mic at the Comedy Underground. A year later... He quit his job in healthcare and took the leap to performing full-time. He hasn't looked back since. A P.O.'s back in town this weekend for a show at the Blue Note Waikiki on Monday. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with him this morning.
5: You can't say wrong stuff and blame me. I love your Hawaiian pizzas. Because we Hawaiians are so famous for our Canadian bacon, you know. I grew up near the Canadian bacon trees, Oahu, and we'd we'd climb up and and knock the bacon off the branches. You want a Hawaiian pizza? Put Spam on that bad boy. There's your Hawaiian pizza. Can you talk a
9: little bit about that point in your life where you decided that you wanted to become a stand-up comedian? I was always a fan of comedy.
8: When I was young, my mom would let me stay up on Fridays. If I had a good week, I could stay up late on Friday, and watch Carson. And then, you know, certainly with Andy Bumatai really hit big when I was probably uh, 10 or 12. And the idea that someone could just stand up and do it, who's from Hawaii, to do it the way he was doing it was amazing to me. So I really became a fan of stand-up after that. But I didn't think I was going to do it. And then after college, when I was in Seattle, a friend who was working the same place as I was at the airport in Seattle, he took me to Open mic. I got to watch open mic, so it kind of started there, and then and then about the third time I went, he signed me up, and I did a few minutes. When he signed you up, did he
9: already think you were funny, or did he kind of do it to kind of push you outside of your comfort zone?
8: He knew I kind of had a like I, I would write stuff whenever I had a, co- a class in college that I could do humor. I tried; it wasn't always funny, but I tried to do humor. So, so he knew because we had talked about that. I had asked him about how he writes comedy and everything, so he knew I had a notebook of things. And he, he said, well, would you like to do it? All you got to do his talk for three to five minutes? And I thought, I'd, yeah, I'll try it. I, I think I secretly wanted to, but I just, really, I just kind of thought, well, I just like being around this. Do you remember any of your jokes from that first open mic? Uh, no, not really. Uh, boy, I could look it up though. I have it somewhere. I have that set somewhere. It's probably embarrassing, really. When we <laughs> right. first start the first year or so, much of that material is pretty embarrassing because you're still learning how to do it.
9: At what point in your career did you feel that you were comfortable or, or you felt like you got the hang of it?
8: Years. It takes absolute years. I remember one time when I first started, I was watching an interview with Seinfeld. And he said, like, you are your age in comedy. At 10 years, you're like a 10-year-old kid. You kind of get it, but you're not quite there yet. But you, but you finally start to get a grasp. And I, And I remember thinking, that's insane. 10 years? No way. And man, when I hit 10 years, I thought, he's absolutely right. It takes years before you're comfortable. I think... There's a point where you stop taking it personally, where a bad show isn't an affront on you, right? Because yeah. when you're talking about your life and they don't laugh, it feels like they hate you personally and, and really hard to not take it that way. So maybe eight years down the road, I finally started to realize it isn't personal. You just have to figure out what went wrong and what I could have controlled and done better, and then go from there. And that made comedy a lot easier. Cause when you're taking it personally, man, you bad show, you you head back home or to your hotel and you just brood and you, you're you so bummed and, and sad. and But it takes years to kind of get past that.
9: Whenever people give advice on on how to write, we tend to hear a lot about, you know, write what you know. When you write your
8: jokes or your bits, where do you pull your comedy from? Well, for me, everything I do is sort of from my life because it was the thing I worked hardest on. It was the thing I put in the most effort. You know, I've tried to do observational and current event type stuff. But the the stuff that I really worked hard on, the stuff that I really came up with the best punchline, spent the most time on, worked the hardest at, were things about my life. So when I talk about parenthood, marriage, traveling as a comic, those bits did better because not only did I put more effort into them writing, but I also performed them with a a little more energy, you know, behind it. And that's just for me. There are a lot of comics who do a great job with all kinds of different types of humor. But for me, I noticed I put in the most work when I was doing something that was An honest reaction or something that really happened in my life.
5: It's true, Hawaiians love spam. I didn't realize until I moved away that nobody else does. We love spam and regular, not light. They have spam light because if you're health conscious, you're probably shopping for spam. (laughs) Is this gluten free? Is it? Spam light, it says in the can, it's low salt. You know what? Spam without salt is clay.
9: You've been in the game for, I think, over 30 years. Yeah. With, with all the platforms that are available for comedians to be on now, do you find it harder? Is it more challenging to be fresh and to have bits and jokes that haven't been heard before?
8: There always is. I mean, that, that's just part of comedy. And it's a little tricky to do because there are so many more comedians now than when I started tons. And so, yeah, I look right here in Hawaii, you know, I I can't say how many years ago the comedy scene kind of dwindled a bit right after the comedy clubs closed. There wasn't much of a comedy scene here. There was a few people just trying to throw together things. and, And now there's a ton of comics here that are, that are getting better every day. Every time I come here, I see, I see comics improving and, um, there are many different venues where you can see comedy and 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 so yeah, so there's a lot more comics now. So there's a lot of pressure to try and figure out your, your own individual angle. Because a lot of times that's really what it's about. Like you can have really great punchlines, but if you have punchlines that sort of are similar to this person or that person, yeah. it's hard to differentiate. So so you have to have really a unique way of looking at things. And yeah, it's a lot of pressure now. But on the other, on the other side of that. There's also a lot more avenues. Back then, there were gatekeepers that sort of, this is how you built a crowd. You had to get an agent. You had to go through L.A. or New York. You had to do all these things. And now there are people who are just building crowds on TikTok and YouTube, and they're going into comedy clubs and headlining without ever talking to a gatekeeper. So there's a lot more comics, but there's also a lot more opportunities to to build your own crowd. Do
9: you have your eye on anybody here? Is there anybody that you've seen recently from Hawaii that you think,
8: hey, that guy has what it takes? There's a few, but I will say, so I haven't been here since before COVID. So it's been a few years. I did the first Aloha Comedy Festival in, it was in late February of 2020. And literally three weeks later, the country shuts down. But I do remember at the time, people here telling me, you should watch Tumwa A. He was in, on a show in the festival and so funny. And in that time, in, in those two and a half years since, he's done really well. He was really the guy to watch when I was last here. And he's done a lot with it. He's doing great.
9: In your comedy, you make light of misconceptions the rest of the country has of Hawaii and Hawaiians, as the years go on, do people still surprise you with what they think of us? To be honest,
8: not as much. Just with the internet, people are much more aware. And also and also too, by the way, with TV shows that actually have that are set here that actually have Hawaiians in them, they've gotten better. Because it used to be you never saw Hawaiians on these shows. Right. And now I remember when CSI Hawaii came out and I I watched like the first two episodes, they were using words that I was thinking, there's no way the audience knows what that word is. And they, but they weren't explaining it or trying to pander to it. They were just allowing people to say words that people here say. And I wish I could remember the specific example there, but there was one where I I was like, wow, that is only Hawaii people would know that. And so I think it's gotten a lot better where, you've seen hawaiian people in hawaiian shows you've seen a lot more things about hawaii cuz for a long time you had or you know, movies like 51st dates which is you know has its funny moments but it's not it's not it doesn't tell anybody anything about hawaiian comedy in hawaii or whatever and so i think it's changed a lot but when i first started like maybe the first 10 years people would say the most bizarre things to me and, it, and a lot of it became material Now, I also think that there came a time, especially sort of after 9-11, that Hawaii became a a much more popular destination because it was like going to someplace different without needing a passport. You know, it was like going to someplace exotic. But I remember people being really afraid to travel internationally after 9-11. And so I think things have sort of changed a lot. I don't get much of that anymore after shows. But yeah, for the first maybe 10, 15 years, man, people said the most bizarre stuff.
5: (laughs) As you heard, my name is Kermit Appeal. Appeal's a Hawaiian name. Kermit is not. <laughs> I had someone ask me, Kermit, is that your stage name? <laughs> yes, I chose that one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's a real name. My parents gave it to me. My mom was trying to be nice. Kermit is a Celtic word meaning great warrior. <laughs> It's also an American word meaning frog, Mom. My
9: parents named me Russell because it was the only name they could agree on. And they probably did it because of that Rap Rappelander sketch. And, <laughs> and so, you know, I'm sure you tell this story all, all the time, but what's the story behind your parents' name when you Kermit?
8: Yeah. So, so Sesame Street went national when I was two, which changed the name completely. But it was a thing where my, my dad was a big football fan when my mom goes into labor, he was watching football and there was a linebacker for the Miami Dolphins named Kermit Johnson. He just thought that was a, it was a cool name. And I'd like to thank Kermit Johnson for having a good game just that day. <laughs> Cause he wasn't, he wasn't like a star NFL player by any means, but you know, he sort of showed up that day and my dad thought oh, that's a cool name. And maybe it was, you know what I mean? Like now we look at that name differently, but maybe it was and it changed everything. But you, you know what I learned very early on? So I, I was, I was at elementary school in Kaimiloa and in, in Eva Beach. And I realized if I joked about it first, it kind of made it not as interesting for them to joke about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because there's two ways you're going to go with that. You're going to fight or you're going to joke. And I realized early on in Eva Beach that I'm not, probably not going to be a fighter per se. You know, so and so I started making jokes about it. And that sort of started my sense of humor. And that and that's really one of the premises of my act that I've been talking about since day one. And I'm glad I do because it gets people to remember my name. Mm-hmm. So if I'm on a comedy show with, say, five comedians and there's Dave, John, whatever, and and Kermit, they're going to remember my name. Yeah. Especially before the days where your phone is right there, before the days when you had to actually go look someone up, people had to go home and look it up. You know, and, and then the other thing is I'll meet comedians or or people in the industry, you know, agents or whatever. And they said, oh, I've heard of you. Mm-hmm. Not because, I, like, I'm, I'm one of the most popular comics out there, but because, oh, yeah, I've heard that name. People know who I am. And there aren't that... Many uh, Kermit's in comedy, so when my name comes up, they know who they're talking about.
9: Kermit, I really appreciate your time, and I had I had really had a lot of fun talking to you. And thank you so much for having me. I
8: I really appreciate it.
0: That was Native Hawaiian and veteran stand-up com- comedian Kermit Apio. He was talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Apio will be performing at the Blue Note Waikiki on Monday, August fifteenth. We'll have links to more information on the conversation web uh, page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. dot That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we talk about managing tourism on Kauai. Call our Talk Back line. Leave us your comments, 808-792-8217. You can uh, write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can also listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subbiano, and Lillian Song. Our intern is Emily Tom. The Backyard Quiz three, a theme was written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.